Morning, everybody. It's my privilege this morning to read from the Word of God, uh, Matthew 13, verses uh, 24 through the end of the chapter. It's a little bit lengthy, and I'm not sure if Jackie's going to get through it all, but <laughs> we'll see. There's always next time. <laughs> Verse 24, the parable of the weeds. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and, the went, and went away. And when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have, have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let's grow both together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell you the reapers. Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned but gather the wheat into my barn. Then he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man so took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when he has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like... Leaven that a woman took and hid for in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. It was to fulfill the pro what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundations of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples said to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field, he answered. The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is in the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it, will it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun of the king in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let them hear. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then hid in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has buys and sells of that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in, the, in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down 
and sorted all the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is, what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is it not this carpent, the carpenter's son? Is it... Is it not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are, and are not all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, The prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just want to lift up this day to you, Lord, and all that is in it, Lord. And Lord, just, just bless the teaching that Jackie gives on this, Lord, and to uh, help us all understand uh, the words that are spoken. In your name we pray. Amen. All the little ones are free. I'd love to hold you captive longer, but they won't let me. So this morning, we're going to take a look at the kingdom parables. <clears throat> there is a... There is a move. I don't know if it's really a movement. I think it's more... Uh, happy accident maybe where the the church is or has slowly become uh, focused on man and we start to lose our focus on God it's very subtle we maybe won't even pick up maybe there's a worship song and the and the song is singing about all the marvels that God has done for me. And these subtle things, I think, infiltrate the church. And the church begins to lose the value she should have for the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus, in this section, in Matthew chapter 13, he, he teaches the kingdom parables. And they're all linked we know they're all linked because in verse 24, he says, and he taught another parable. In the Greek, there are two words for another, heteros, which means another of a different kind, and elos, which means another of the same kind. So he uses the word alos. Alos means I'm teaching another parable of the same kind. These parables all go together. They all have the same subject, and I want you to understand that the subject of these parables is not man. Man is associated with the parables, 
The subject of the parables is the kingdom of heaven. It says in Matthew 13, 24, he taught them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared. Matthew 13, 31, he taught another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like the grain of a mustard seed. He taught another parable, 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. In Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Matthew 13, 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net thrown into the sea. Matthew 13, 52, he said, therefore, every scribe who is trained for the kingdom of heaven is like master of the house. The subject matter is the kingdom of heaven. And we need to define that. Now, scripture is going to use two terms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is only mentioned in the gospel of Matthew. All the other gospels use the phrase, the kingdom of God. And so some brilliant men have decided that they're two different things. However, this brilliant man is here to tell you they're not. <laughs> Sometimes we outthink ourselves. You guys ever done that? You ever found yourself making something more complicated than it has to be? That, that, the parables will test you in that because we have a tendency to make the parables stand on their ear. When a parable is given, especially the short parables, when a parable is given and it's short, you notice the disciples never ask for a meaning. There's only, the only parables the disciples ask for a meaning on are the longer parables. Because normally, a parable was short, it had one point, and it was whatever first jumped out at you was the point. Then, 2,000 years later, we complicate parables, and we try to make them stand on their ear. We're not going to do that this morning. And hopefully, we'll, we'll be able to understand. So when it talks, when the Bible talks about the kingdom of God... And the kingdom of heaven, they're synonymous terms. And I'm going to tell you why. Matthew 19, 23 and 24. I don't think that's on the slide, but you guys have Bibles in front of you and they still work. So look at Matthew 19, verse 23. Jesus speaking, he says to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 24. Again, I tell you, it is easier for the camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They are synonymous terms. They mean the same thing. Matthew's audience is primarily Jewish. And Jews would go out of their way not to use the name God. In fact, if you meet Jews today, they still will do that. In fact, the Jews, before they would say the name of God, even the generic term, El, they would say Hashem, which simply means the name. So Matthew is written to Jews, and Matthew uses the term kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God speak of the spiritual rule of God over the hearts and lives of men willing to submit to God's authority. It has, that's the spiritual aspect. There's a physical aspect, yes, where there will be a physical kingdom of God. Amen? We long for and await the return of our king. Until that time, we have the spiritual reality of the kingdom of God, which is men and women who have submitted their will to his. That God sits on the throne of our life. If he does, you are in 
the kingdom of heaven. In John chapter 3, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus said, Unless you are born again, you shall not enter the kingdom of God. How do you enter the kingdom? By being born again. That's the only way. Jesus says in Matthew 18, verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless you become like these little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We enter when we submit our will before his will, when he regenerates us by the power of the Holy Spirit, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Are you with me? This is how we enter the kingdom of heaven. The focus of these parables is on the kingdom of heaven. Now, the kingdom of heaven is made up of men and women who have trusted Christ as their Savior, okay? So there is a sense in which we corporately are the kingdom of heaven. But the focus of these parables is trying to help us understand how important that is, how valuable it is. There's four focuses on these or four <coughs> applications, I guess, of these parables. One, it's going to speak to us about growth, how the kingdom of heaven will grow. It's going to speak to us of the value. What is the value of the kingdom of heaven? It's going to speak to us of time. There is the end of the age. And it's going to speak to us of the consequences of rejecting the kingdom of heaven. We're going to see the reality that, that in the church, which should signify what the kingdom of heaven looks like, we have both professors and possessors. Do you understand what I mean? You have those who give Christ lip service and those who are truly surrendered. You have believers and make-believers. And there's two parables that deal with that, right? Wheat and tares. And the dragnet has all kind of fish come in the dragnet, but they're separated from the true and the false. So we're going to talk about these applications. The first parable deals with the response of people. The first one Mark did last week. did a great job on the parable of the sower. Four different kinds of soil, right? Four different responses. Same seed. There's only one seed. <clears throat> the gospel given by Jesus Christ. That seed is shared and there are four responses. Three of them didn't save. Amen? One did. But the parable of the sower does not say you should decide that the soil is no good before you throw the seed on it, does it? The sower still sowed, didn't he? Everywhere he went, no matter the response of the soil, the seed gets cast. It deals with the response of the different soils. Parables 2 and 7, the wheat and the tares and the net, deal with the problem of false profession, <coughs> excuse me, and how that will be handled. Let's look at that. Verse 24. So he put another parable before them saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in the field. But while his men were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain and the weeds appeared also, the servant of the master of the house said to him, master, did we not sow good seed in your, in your field? Why then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go gather them? He said, no. 
Lest in gathering the weeds, you also root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest, I will tell the reapers to gather the weeds first, that they may be burned and gather the wheat into my barn. The second similar parable is the parable of the net. It's in verse 47 and 49. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea. It gathered fish of every kind. So when it was full, men drew it ashore, sat down and sorted the good in the containers, threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age, there's the term for time, the angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous. Now, you'll notice that the disciples are going to ask him for the understanding of the parable of the sower. It was a long parable, right? There's a lot of moving parts there. They're going to ask him for the, for the, the explanation for the wheat and the tares. They don't ask him for the explanation of the net. Because the, the design of parables was to cast an illustration out that illustrated something that was something people were dealing with at the time. And it was utilizing regular everyday things like fishing or sowing or harvesting. And so there were, there were terms that they could understand. Jesus is going to ask them, he's going to say, do you understand these parables? What are they going to say? Yes. Why? Because they're not complicated. Do yourself a favor. Don't complicate them. Let them say what they say. Let's, let's continue to take a look. Parables 3 and 4 deal with the growth of the kingdom. He put out another parable saying, the kingdom of heaven is like the grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air may nest in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till all was leavened. Initially, you have this description of a seed, the, the mustard seed, smallest of all seeds. It's inconspicuous. It doesn't look like much. When Jesus comes and he's ministering, he's talking to 12 guys. He's followed by thousands in one tiny little piece of the planet. Jesus never leaves his, his home country, which is not very big. You and I could say we've never left our home country, but it's much larger, isn't it? You know, Israel's roughly the size of Rhode Island, so it's not saying much. It starts very small and inconspicuous, but it will become great. This is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I know that people like to come to this parable and say, but the, the, they always like to use a hermeneutical term. The, what do they call it? Um, expositional constancy. Isn't that a nice word? <laughs> Anytime somebody starts an explanation with the expositional constancy, 
the hermeneutic of expositional constancy demands that birds are always evil. And so the growth of the mustard seed is unnatural. It becomes a great tree and evil is lodged in its branches. Now, let me say this. Did the church grow abnormally large? For sure, it did. And was evil lodged in its branches? Yes. But that's bringing a meaning that I understand later into a parable. Jesus is telling his disciples and those who are gathered there, I know this is starting small, but it's going to become a big deal. Is that true? Is that simple? Now, for those of you out there who understand expositional constancy, let me just tell you. Birds are not always evil. So it does not work to demand expositional constancy. If you don't agree, I'll be here tomorrow morning. And I'll show you Daniel chapter 4. For those of you who'd like to study Daniel chapter 4, the birds that lodge in the branches of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and his tree represented all the nations. Are, are nations evil? Probably. I don't know. But uh, the, is a dove evil? Oh, crazy. Is it a bird? Huh. When we, when, we, when we start to pick and pull things, I just, I'm just want to encourage you biblical students, let simple reign before you start jumping through three theological hoops. Okay? Or you can jump. I like theological hoops. Let's come jump in them together. So the simple understanding of this parable is that what started inconspicuously as a small little seed is going to become great. That's simple. Did that happen? Yeah, it did. Did the gospel go forward as a, and, and, and radically change areas of the world? Is it still doing that today? Praise God. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven, he goes on, is also like leaven. A woman took leaven and hid it in three measures of flour till all was leaven. This is where my battle against expositional constancy began. Because everybody would tell me all the time, leaven is always a picture of evil. And so a little bit of evil will mess up the whole lump. Is that true? Yes, it's true. But I'm bringing that truth from outside and importing it into the text. That would be like Jesus saying the kingdom of heaven is like evil. Does that make sense to you? Now, if you were gathered in that group, was that the, is that the connection you think he'd be making? Is there evil within the church? Yes, but we understand that from the wheat and the tares, don't we? We understand that from the dragnet that brought all kind of fish and not all of it was edible. Right? So we understand that part, but this is about the kingdom of heaven, and the kingdom of heaven is going to start invisible. If you looked at three lumps, you don't see the yeast. You don't see the leaven. But is the leaven making a difference in the, in the dough? Yeah, it is. That's what the kingdom of God is like. It gets in our life, and it begins to make a difference, and you don't always see it, but it becomes evident starts inconspicuous and it becomes evident it has a dramatic effect and listen you need to know 
that the kingdom of heaven and the gospel of Jesus Christ has had a dramatic effect on the world. On the whole world. We get so focused on all the things that are wrong, we forget all the things that are right. Don't be like that. The kingdom of heaven is amazing. It is beautiful. And it is changing everything around it. And when evil things get into it, which they do, who separates it? Whose job is it to separate? Yeah, God knows how to get the wicked out and keep the righteous. Amen? Let's let God do his work and let's stay fundamentally connected to what the word of God teaches. Now this next section, parables 5 and 6, they deal with the value of the kingdom. And this is where that thing I spoke of earlier, the subtlety of, of making things about me, infiltrates this parable. I, I have done this. I would say you see it most in Calvary chapels. We, we all do this to this parable. We make the treasure in the field me and that Jesus Christ gave all to redeem me. Is that true? It is true. Did Jesus, was there something else for Jesus to give more than his life? No, it's true. I'm not saying that's not true, that you were of enough value. The Bible tells it like this. In this, we know the love of God, that when we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Amen? We were, but the Bible describes us as the ungodly. <laughs> the only place the Bible talks about us as a treasure is when it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He, he endured the shame of the cross for the joy of the redemption of mankind. Now, it's true. I don't want you to think it's not true that Jesus Christ gave everything for you. But I don't believe that's the point of these parables. And if you find old tapes on Matthew, you can hear me teach this. Uh, the way that I'm saying now, I, I don't think I can see it that way anymore. It's subtle how we start to make things about me. It's not about me. This is about the value of the kingdom of heaven. And there's a reason why it's about this. It's not about purchasing salvation. Can we all get that out of the way? This is, you're not buying your salvation. Can anyone buy their salvation? No, does it say anywhere in here you're buying your salvation? No, it says you saw the value of the kingdom and you were willing to give all for it. Does that sound familiar to you? Because we're going to get to a few places in Matthew where Jesus is going to say that you need to surrender most. God does not want us to surrender all, does he? Have you guys ever sang the song, I Surrender All? Have you surrendered all? Bunch of hypocrites. <laughs> On Wednesday, we've been going through the book of Joel. And Joel's been a really good study for me personally, talking about the, the day of the Lord. And I don't want to get too far off track because I don't have enough time. But... One of the things we understand through Joel and other Old Testament scriptures, many, 
is that God is a jealous God. And what that means to you and I is God loves us with an intolerant love. And that's important. Because nowadays we think God loves with a tolerant love. And that is not found in scripture. God's love for you is intolerant. He will brook no rivals. Right? He wants our faithful love in response. Does he want to share our heart with other gods? That's what all the idolatry issues of the Old Testament we're dealing with, right? He doesn't want to share our heart with other things. What Does he want to share our heart with a beloved sin? David said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, you do not hear me. He brooks no rivals. He loves, yes, he loves with an intolerant love. He doesn't want to share you with anything else. And all those who wanted to share God with other gods or share God with their sin or share God with whatever else, those were the guys you read about over and over again on repeat in the Old Testament who were constantly coming under judgment over and over again because they were not men or women of undivided hearts. What did God call David? So that phrase, a man after God's own heart, means David had an undivided heart. What do I mean by that? David had faithful love for God. Was David perfect? No. Okay, so we're not talking about perfection, right? I'm not talking about you're perfect, you never sin, you never do nothing wrong. I am talking about a perfect desire for God. And this is where that comes from. The value you place on the kingdom of heaven. If your value for the kingdom of heaven is small, there's just really not much you're willing to do. If the value you place on the kingdom of heaven is great, there is much you are willing to do. Parable 8 deals with what do we do if we understand these things. So as we look at these parables, and we want to kind of understand what's going on, don't worry, we're going to come back and touch on that in just a moment, but I, I want to be able to complete our thoughts as we work our way through. So the the disciples ask for understanding on the larger parables. Jesus gives it to them, right? It says in verse 34, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. He said, nothing without a parable. This fulfills what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And what's going on, he's quoting from Psalm 78, verse 2. And in Psalm 78, verse 2, that he's going through the history of the Jews, and they know their history. Do the Jews know their history? They know the story of the Exodus. They know that God delivered them. They know that they crossed the Red Sea. They know all those things. The point is the parable, the parabolus that is being laid out before them is the understanding of in light of your history, 
you are persistently rebellious against God. And the result of that persistent rebellion is seen in God's justice and mercy and the people's constant need and struggle with privilege. That was not obvious from their history. Like if you go to history class and you learn about history, you, <clears throat> you learn all the dates. Here's the dates, here's the figures, here's all these things lay out. I know that. And then it's laying beside that the why of the history. That's what the parables do. You might know your history, but you don't understand your rebellion. You don't, under, you don't understand your sinfulness. You don't understand the pattern that keeps being repeated over and over again. So the parable is to draw out that understanding. It's to draw those things out. So when he left the crowds in verse 36, his disciples say, explain the parable of the weeds. Because it was not just a one sentence parable like normal. It was more intricate, so they want understanding. So the disciples came to him and said, explain it. And he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field's the world. The good seed are the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. Now, listen, there are differences in people and everyone is not a child of God. Did you know that? Now, oftentimes we say things like, well, everyone's a child of God. Well, what we mean when we say that is we're all created by God. Okay. We find our origin in God, but you're not all children of God. You are one of two camps, a child of God or a child of the evil one. There's no third camp. Jesus said, you are either for me or against me. There's no middle ground. Neutrality is a myth. You are for me or against me. You are a child of God a child of the kingdom, or a child of the wicked one. He says, the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. And the weeds will be gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all that causes sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. Just another term to describe hell. All the terms used to describe hell are metaphor. They're all metaphors. Your outer darkness, your in eternal fire, the lake of fire. Those are all metaphors for a place we can't hardly fathom that was created for the devil and his angels. That is real. You know why? Because God uses the same language to talk about hell as he does heaven. So if hell's not real, neither is heaven. You can't have one without the other. The language does not allow it. So you have the reality of hell. The sons of the evil one are going to hell. The sons of God, the children of God are going to heaven. This is what the parable is describing. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of, of teeth and the righteous will, si will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears. Let him hear. Let me see your hands. How many people have ears? He who has ears, let him hear what Jesus is saying. Now, the distinction is, some, this is a connection I'm, I'm trying to draw, okay? <clears throat> the, the distinction I'm trying to draw is the sons of the wicked one don't value the kingdom of heaven. 
and the sons of God do. Now, I'm, I'm drawing that correlation. I'm making that assertion. Because the next, the next parable that we have coming, uh, coming before us is uh, Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in the field, which a man found and covered up and in joy. He sells everything he has to buy the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. And when he finds a pearl of great price, he with joy sells all that he has so that he might purchase the pearl. These parables are saying this, the kingdom is the most valuable thing you can possess. What's the point? It's not about purchasing salvation. What's the point? We can lose everything with joy when we receive the kingdom of heaven. Just think about that for a minute. We can lose everything with joy. Let me say it another way. We will joyfully pursue that which we greatly value. We will joyfully pursue and pay any price for that which we greatly value. I coached football for a lot of years, and I was uh, successful. I was a successful coach. I had good teams. I coached young boys to become men. That was one of my goals. I wanted them to be godly men. We did devotions every day. We prayed all the time was not a perfect system, but it was mine. And I laid before those men a vision. I laid this vision. I said, here's the vision. If you will joyfully give all you can to achieve the vision, you will accomplish your goal. Our goal was to win a ring, win state, go to state, defeat everybody, beat them all, and walk away champions of CIF, Southern Section, California. That was the goal. Those, those young men started working toward that goal in May. They never missed a day. Six days a week. The only day off I gave was Sunday. They were in the weight room every single morning. They were at practice every single day, including moms and dads, Thanksgiving Day. I'd practice on Thanksgiving Day every single year because the championship game was the following week. They joyfully gave up all that was involved in being available for all those things for the prize set before them. And they won the ring. Years later, I had another team. Years later. And I laid out the same vision as you can have that same goal everywhere. And so I laid out that same vision and I laid out what was required. But they didn't value the vision. So no one showed up for weights. People mispractice all the time. 
and we ended those years in the middle of the road. What's the difference between the two teams has nothing to do with skill and ability. We joyfully pursue what we greatly value. Now, football does not matter at all. My point is a parable. Something we understand laid alongside the kingdom of heaven. If you greatly value the kingdom of heaven, there's no sacrifice that will look like a sacrifice to you. You will freely lay all those things down for the joy set before you, just as Christ, our example, did for us. If we recognize the kingdom of heaven, we will joyfully pursue. Let me give you an example. Jackie, I don't know, I, I don't know if all these dots connect. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. I don't know if it's on the slide. You, you may have to look it up. But like I said before, your Bible still works. <clears throat> these are Paul's words. He says, Philippians 3, verse 7. Whatever gain I had... I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ. The surpassing value the kingdom of heaven. Folks, we don't buy our salvation. But our pursuit of Christ becomes very real and filled with self-sacrifice because we value him. Is there some sin you would not lay down for Jesus? I can tell you for me, there's, there's, not, there's not a sin. Are there sins I struggle with? Yes. But would I deny laying them down before Christ? Would I say to Christ, I must keep this sin in order to come to you? Because he is the God of intolerant love. He will not brook a rival. He will not allow that I regard iniquity in my heart and proclaim Christ with my other hand. I value Christ so much, there is not a sin I would not lay down. But when I lay down my sin, he gives me salvation. It's not a fair trade. When I lay down my life, he gives me eternal life. It's not a fair trade. The things that I would lay down for Christ because, and I would do it joyously. I would not do it like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I got to give this up. If that's my attitude, I don't value. None of the guys, I'm telling you, none of the guys on those football teams in those early years, none of those guys whined and complained ever about Thanksgiving practice. Never. Because as soon as they slid that ring on their finger the next week, all that they ever sacrificed, they never thought of again for the prize. The same is true in the kingdom of heaven. Well, you see Jesus Christ and you hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. You think you're going to whine about what you gave up? You're going to whine about, oh, I can't believe I, I, I quit drinking. I can't believe I stopped smoking dope. Oh, it's so hard. Not, not if you value Christ. If you don't value him, 
Well, all those things will be hard. Because you don't see the treasure in the field. You get why it's important not to make the parable about us? People ask me, why don't we see the power of God moving through the church like we read about in Scripture? Well, maybe our, our problem is that our, our desires are not too great. They're too small. Maybe there's too many other things we're holding on to. God wants to give us real treasure. You're holding on to the fake. When I was a young man, I loved get going out and getting drunk with my friends. We'd laugh about the times I'd get my head stuck behind a toilet. I was, uh, oh, I should be quiet. I was telling a story the other day about waking up on a beach naked. It was a public beach. I still don't know where my clothes were. It was a humbling walk. <laughs> I don't mourn the surrender of any of that. I don't mourn none of it. Because none of it really satisfied None of it brought life. None of it had value. It was false treasure pretending to be real. They were false friends pretending to be friends. It's a false world trying to draw me up in false desires. And Jesus is saying clearly the greatest prize you can ever possess is a relationship with him it is him that matters Romans 14 17 says for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking but righteousness peace and joy in the Holy Spirit because when you know the value of Jesus Christ you won't mourn not one thing you lay down I've been at the bed of a, of a woman I shared with you before, dying of cancer. They opened her up to try to do cancer surgery on her, and the cancer was everywhere. And she was so full of infection, they could not close her stomach. So her stomach was open until the day she died. Wide open. Couldn't stitch it back together. She had no health. She was in pain 24-7. But she had the kingdom of heaven. And when I came to visit her, to pray with her about what she was going through, she met me with joy. Rejoicing about the, the time that was approaching for her to see her great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And she wanted to pray for me because she said, you need it worse than I do. I'm going to Jesus. You got to stay here. I'll never forget her. Going through that suffering, but saying what Paul said, I do not consider this present suffering worthy to compare, which the glory with the glory that is before us. It's not worthy to be compared. Jesus looked at his disciples in verse 51 and he said, have you understood these things? And they said, yes, because they're simple, not complicated. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of the house. 
He's telling them, you can use these same tools. I just did. I told you an illustration about football, and I laid it alongside the kingdom of heaven and what joyful pursuit and sacrifice looks like. And joyful sacrifice will never be thought of as sacrifice for the joy of the prize. So when Jesus finished all of these parables, he went from there and he gives us an illustration of it. We're going to end right here. He went to the synagogue in his hometown. He's already been thrown out of there once. And he taught there, and they, they were astonished. They were blown away. And they said, where did this guy get this wisdom and mighty works? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Just please hear it. I mean, he's not really all that great. He's just a carpenter's son. I mean, we know his mom. We know his brothers. Aren't his sisters with us too? Why should we listen to him? What's so great? about him so they were scandalized at him they were offended and Jesus said a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown because in his hometown they could not value him there was no value to its words so he did not many works there why because of their unbelief Their unbelief was, was materialized, let's say, because they could not value him. I know you. You ever try to talk to somebody who doesn't think much of you? You ever get anywhere? No? And we pray in those instances that someone else will be able to share, right? They didn't value the treasure that was standing before them. They didn't, so they did not believe. They could not connect. These parables are bracketed between the two that say there's wheat and tares, sons of the kingdom, sons of the evil one. There's good fish and bad fish, and God's going to sort all those out. I think... These are some of the things Paul's thinking of when he says to the people, be sure. Work to make your election sure. Are you a child of God? Do you value the treasure in the field? Does your whole life look like a bunch of sacrifices or are they joyous sacrifices you're happy to lay down so that you have Christ? These are the things that the parables are calling us to consider. These are the things God would have us consider this morning. As we close, why don't you stand with me and let's pray. Father God, I am so thankful for the truth of your word. And let your word be true and every man a liar. I, 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 I see on the pages of scripture so many times where your, your word declares to love the Lord your God with all your soul, 
your mind, your strength. I see these things in Scripture saying there's value in this relationship with God. The kingdom of heaven has value. Is it perfect on earth? No. But it has value. <clears throat> it has power. It causes us to grow. But there will be a day where we will be divided, as Scripture declares, between the sheep and the goats, children of the kingdom and children of the wicked one, those who saw value in the treasure and those who did not. There were times in my life when I cried out, Lord God, help me to love you with all my heart. To not, to not brook before you any rivals, anything that, that I would rather have than you. Not my wife, not my children, not my possessions. For you, Lord God, are the greatest of all treasure. And I want to joyously sacrifice all that I have to be with you. God, I pray that this would be our heart. Even as David, as David would lay out and he would, he would sing to the Lord, as the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longs for you. The man after God's own heart, the undivided heart of David. God, I pray that every man, woman, and child present here this morning will have that same desire. That would say to you, Lord, help me find my satisfaction in you. Help me taste and see that the Lord is good. Help me know your value that I would pursue joyously you. God, I pray that you would move and work in this place, Lord, that we can know you, that we can experience all that you have for us, God. So I pray as we as we close in worship and as we have elders come forward and, and deacons and leaders here within the church who will come and pray, I, I pray, Lord, if there are any here today who says, man, I need to get this, I need to get this right in my, in my mind. I need this right in my heart, Lord. I pray, God, that they would come and be encouraged by the brotherhood of other believers who are learning to walk the walk. God, I pray that you be glorified and magnified in this place. Open our eyes and our ears that we would treasure you with all our heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.